Thank you, Mike. It's a great delight to be here with you this morning. I'm going to ask you to take your Bible and turn to Romans chapter 8. And for those of you who may not be aware with this, we're calling this an official installation service, just a public recognition um, with a, a guest speaker to acknowledge that. We're going to pray for Mike uh, at the end. Uh, uh, so that's uh, what I'm doing here today, and this is a special occasion in Mike's life and the life of the church, and I'm just uh, so honored to be a part of it. This was the first time it was able to work into my schedule, so that's uh, why the timing is as it, as it is. And uh, I, I'm struggling with a little bit of voice issues here. My doctor says he assures me it's allergies. He checked me out just a couple of days ago, and... Uh, um, this happens about once a year, so I just um, want to put your mind at ease there. Uh, but what, what a great occasion to be a part of. I've known Mike, I, I was just thinking about it, um, uh, almost 20 years or so. And uh, it's been a great joy to uh, follow him and speak where he has pastored on multiple occasions. And uh, now to be here, uh, I'm, I'm just delighted in God's answer to prayer and bringing him to you. And as I spoke with Tim, uh, who is representative of the search committee uh, a few months ago, called me as a reference for Mike. I said, uh, if you, I'm not the voice of God saying he's God's man for you, but I'm saying if you call him, you're, you're going to find you've got uh, an undiscovered diamond again, or a rediscovered diamond here that others have, uh, have missed. And I really believe that. And I hope you will find that to be true. I think you are greatly privileged uh, to have him as your pastor. I know he feels greatly privileged and humble to be your pastor. So that's, uh, that's what we're about here today, but I have to admit, I, I almost had to balk and, and cancel at, at the just last minute. So last minute, I mean just a few minutes ago, I thought Mike had abandoned his Trinitarian beliefs, um, <laughs> but he, he corrected before it was too late there in the baptistry. So uh, I could not have participated otherwise, but thank you for having me, and I do look forward, God willing, to come back. Well, it's difficult to choose a passage for an installation service because part of me wants to address the pastor being installed. Part of me wants to address the church, but I, I don't in either case want to overlook the other. I want to do both. So, chosen a passage this morning that is, I think, of general edification to both. It recognizes that both the church in recent years and uh, Mike and Jan and the family in recent years have both had some, um, some, some challenges, some difficulties. And uh, I wanted to keep that in mind as we look at Romans chapter 8 and verse 31, where there is this wonderful promise. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? How do you know if God is for you or not? When things happen in a church that should not happen, and a church struggles because of that and suffers because of that, how do you know if God is for you when uh, there are countless disappointments over the last seven years and all sorts of challenges when you're seeking to be as faithful as possible when you're living in such a way that you believe God wants you to live, you're praying what you ought to pray, you're doing what you ought to do, you're following godly counsel as far as you understand from the scriptures and, and, uh, and other counselors that you're doing God's will and yet your great prayer isn't answered. It's normal. The question, if, if God is for you, Churches ask that question sometimes. Maybe there's some hidden reason God isn't blessing. God has allowed certain things to happen. 
And it's certainly true that as individuals, pastors or not, we wonder, what am I doing wrong? Why isn't God blessing me? So how do you know if God is for you or not? If you want to get married and nothing ever works out, does that mean God is against you? Or if you marry the person of your dreams, does that mean God is for you? But what if the marriage breaks apart? Does that mean God is against you? What if you lose your job or you can't get a job? Does that mean God is against you? And what if you have unprecedented job success? Does that mean God is for you? What if you're always having money trouble? Does that mean God is against you? And what if you win the publisher's clearinghouse sweepstakes? Does that mean God is for you? In the final analysis, how do you know? I mean, we could talk about being unable to have children, having many children who all turn out well. We could talk about someone you love very dearly dies. You could talk about God miraculously preserving the life of someone. We could talk about issues on both sides of this. How do you know? Well, ultimately, none of the things I've just mentioned here are any indication one way or the other. For all the bad things that I have mentioned here have happened to those God is clearly for. And all the good things I've mentioned have happened to those God is dead set against. So in the final analysis, how do you know whether God is for you or not? Well, the main way we know is because of what God has written for us in the Scripture. This is how we know whether God is for us or not because of what the Bible says He has done for us. Not because of changing circumstances, but because of the unchanging Word of God. My text here has two sentences in one verse. Look at them with me. Verse 31. First sentence is, what shall we say to these things? And the Apostle Paul almost seems to pause at this point and stroke his beard a little bit. What shall we say to these things? What should we say to these things? Well, what things, Paul? Well, it's the things he's been talking about. In one sense, it's a whole book of Romans up to this point. In another sense, it's the things in the immediate paragraph, which we're going to look at in just a moment. But having thought about these things for a moment, he concludes God is for us, for all who are believing in Christ, because he begins the second sentence now, if God is for us, who can be against us? Now, as a seminary professor, you know I'm duty-bound to mention Greek at least once while I'm here, right? But I think this, it's really helpful in this case because that first word in the second sentence, the word if, God is for us, in the Greek language in which the New Testament was originally written, there are several different words, completely different words, but all translated if. It's like, as I've been told, the Eskimos have something like 16 different words for snow. They have one word for dry, powdery snow. They have another word for a heavy, wet snow. 16 different words, but all of them are translated in English as snow. Well, that's the way it is with if in the language in which the New Testament was written. And the one that is used here, well, in, in English, what we have to do to make that differentiation is, is the context. For example, a man might say, well, I'm going fishing tomorrow if it doesn't rain. So you understand, well, you know, he might or he might not. It's going to depend upon the circumstances. But another man might say, I'm going fishing tomorrow if the sun comes up. You understand that he's going fishing tomorrow regardless of the circumstances. Well, that's the kind of the word if that's used here at the first of the second sentence. We could almost translate it as since. So as we follow the thought here, Paul is saying, what do, what do we say to these things? Well, he concludes from these things that God is for us. And if God is for us, who can be against us? But what was it, what were these things that convinced Paul and ought to convince believers in Christ here this morning that God is for us? Well, as I said, in one sense, it's a whole book of Romans up to this point. But in the immediate context, it's the things he's just been talking about in the previous paragraph. <clears throat> so, for example, we know 
starting in verse 26, we know God is for us because it teaches us here that the Holy Spirit who gives us to pray, uh, Holy Spirit he gives to us, prays for us when we don't know what to say. Verse 26, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we ought, what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he, that's God the Father, who searches hearts where the Holy Spirit dwells, knows what the mind of the Spirit is. Because the Spirit dwelling within us, the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Paul says, because that's true, God is for me. You ever had those times when you didn't know what to pray? You desperately needed prayer. You desperately wanted prayer. But what do you pray for, this or that? We don't know the future. We see how one might be better than the other, but... In this case, pray for this. In this case, pray for that. But I don't know the future, so I don't know which one to pray for, but I know I need to pray. Two job offers, two opportunities, two things before you, and you literally do not know which is the one to pray for, but you know you should pray. Or you ever had those times when you couldn't pray? Your heart is like lead in your chest, and you're so, you're so burdened, that you, you, can't, you can't pray because your heart is so heavy. All you can do is just sort of cast yourself across the bed and just groan Godwardly, oh, God, oh, God. Or maybe you ever been in such literal pain or maybe so heavily sedated like after surgery or something, some, something like that, you literally cannot pray. You literally cannot put two words together in your head and offer them to God in prayer. You ever been there? You didn't know what to pray. You literally can't pray. Maybe it's some crisis, it's something that burdens your heart so much, you know you've never needed prayer more in your life. And you can't pray. God is not in heaven wringing his hands going, well, bless her heart. Bless his heart. If they'd only utter something, I could help. Oh, come on, say something. Give me something to work with, would you? I, I'll help if, you, if you'll help me. Give me something. Pray something so I can help. No, no. Our God is so good. Our God is so great. He sends the Holy Spirit to pray for us when we can't pray. We don't know how to pray. Notice it says that the Spirit himself, in verse 26, the Spirit himself intercedes for us. He prays for us when we don't know what to pray. He prays for us when we can't pray. The Spirit himself with groanings too deep for words. It's not the Spirit's groanings, that's our groanings. When we just sort of, we can't pray or even put two thoughts together to pray, we just groan Godwardly. The Holy Spirit encodes upon those groans the very will of God. The Spirit himself intercedes for us. And what percentage of the prayers of the Holy Spirit do you think are answered? I would imagine it's pretty close to the percentage of the prayers of Jesus that are answered, wouldn't you? The Spirit himself intercedes for us. Intercedes, as it says in verse 27 at the end there, according to the will of God, as though he could pray any other way. And so in those moments when we most desperately need prayer and we don't know what to pray or we can't pray, God doesn't abandon us and wait until we can finally pray. He prays for us by means of the Holy Spirit and his prayers are always answered. And the Apostle Paul says, you know what? If God will do that, God is for me. But that's not all. That leads us to one of the most famous verses in the Bible, a verse, famous verse, Romans 8, 28, and we know. Now, just stop right there. Many of you are very familiar with this verse. And by the way, let me just inject here that I, I, it seems to be the, the, the trend for people to back away from using Romans 8, 28, especially in ministry to other people. And I think I know why. I think we've all seen Romans 8, 28 just sort of flippantly thrown out to hurting people. You, you don't do that, 
especially when people are still on the raw edge of pain, when they're questioning God angrily, why did you let this happen? Why did you let this happen? You don't flippantly throw out Romans 8.28 to someone like that. Romans 8.28 is for those who, you know, maybe a little time has passed and they're now seriously, not just angrily and impulsively, but they're seriously saying, Lord, why did you let this happen? Why would you let our church go through this? Why would you not provide a place for us to serve you when we've given our lives to serve you? Why? And that's when Romans 8.28 is the comfort that only Scripture can give. We don't want to abandon Romans 8.28, one of the most precious promises we have. But I think we've all seen it insensitively used, and so we're almost afraid to use it. But do you realize, have you noticed that it starts out with, and we know that for those who love God, not for everybody, but for those who love God, all things work together for good. Not for everybody, but for those who are called according to his purpose. How do we know this? Well, when do we use Romans 8, 28? In the most difficult times in our lives, right? The most challenging times, the most confusing times in our lives. When nothing seems to make sense, when things happen, we say, I, th this shouldn't happen to me. Why did you let this happen? That's when we cling to Romans 8, 28 the most. The worst times in our lives. Go back to the two previous verses. When are the times we don't know what to pray? When are the times maybe we can't pray? It's the worst moments of our lives, right? It's those times when we're most desperately in need of prayer and we don't know what to pray. The Spirit Himself prays for us. He prays according to the will of God. And that's how we know. That's how we know, because the Spirit's prayers are always answered. And so in the worst moments of our lives, when we don't know what to pray and our prayers don't seem to be answered, that's when the Holy Spirit's praying for us. And His prayers are always answered. That's why Romans 8, 28 begins with, and we know, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, our ultimate good, a good we may not see in this world, our ultimate good and God's glory. All things, it says here, even things which are in and of themselves evil. You know they're evil. You call them evil, and God says, amen. You're right. They are pure evil. But the point Paul is making here is that our God, again, is so great, and our God is so good that He can take things that are pure evil and work them together in His almighty hands to perform a divine alchemy so that the final outcome is gold, our ultimate good, His glory. Paul says, if God will do that, if He'll take the worst things that have ever happened to me and work them together with other things so that the final outcome is something I praise God for forever in heaven, then God is for me. You ever notice the Old Testament equivalent of Romans 8, 28? It's Psalm 119, 91, which says, For all things are your servants. All things, even evil things, even the devil. As Martin Luther once said, yes, he's a devil, but he's God's devil. He's on God's chain, and he, as the book of Job shows us, he can't do anything unless God permits it to happen. And when God permits it to happen, it, we're often like Job in that, why did this happen to me? This doesn't seem right. God, if you're in control, how could you allow this to happen? But the Bible calls us to something that the world cannot see and the world cannot believe, and that is that God is in control of all things. And ultimately, he works them all together. Not that they all stand alone individually as good things, but some things which are maybe evil in and of themselves, God is able to take even the most evil things and work them together in His almighty hands to perform that divine alchemy so that whatever turns out is something that eventually, ultimately, we will praise God for. And only a believer can say that. And only a believer can say that sometimes through clenched teeth. 
and only a believer can say that, but sometimes through tears. But it's true. We don't believe it because we see it. We don't believe because in retrospect, oh, yes, these bad things in the past have turned out, so I'm sure this one will turn out well as well. Some things don't. And this verse is not calling us to put on rose-colored glasses and see things that in a way they're not really true. This verse is not telling us to look on the bright side of things. Some things don't have a bright side. This verse is not calling us to look at the silver lining with every cloud. Some clouds don't have silver linings. Some things are pure evil. But the Bible calls us to believe in a God so great that He can take things that are pure evil and work them together in such a way that the day will come we will praise God that He allowed that to happen. As I said, only a Christian can believe that because... What's the worst thing that's ever happened to you? If we had the time and the transparency to hear from everyone in this room about the worst thing that's ever happened to you, I am certain we would hear about some things that someone should have been put in prison for or worse. And we would hear story after story about evil things that have been done to us, evil things that have happened to us, And we say, I believe in God, and I love Jesus, but I can't believe I would ever praise God for allowing that to happen in my life. I want to remind you who wrote those words. The Apostle Paul was a man, when he tells us autobiographically in 2 Corinthians, he has been beaten so many times he cannot remember. How many times have you been beaten for the sake of the gospel? He added to that 195 times the whip of the Romans came across, or the Jews came across his back. How many times, how many lashes across your back have you received for the sake of the gospel? Once he said he was stoned and Lister left for dead. How many times have people stoned you for your beliefs? He said, I've spent a whole night, a whole day in the Mediterranean, shipwrecked three times, danger from my countrymen, danger from the Gentiles. I've been in danger in the city. I've been in danger in the country. Wild beasts, many sleepless nights, many hard journeys, but especially those persecutions of the beatings and the stonings. In other words, Paul could literally say, I've suffered more than any of you. However, he also was given the ultimate human experience. As he tells us in 2 Corinthians 12, there's that place where he says, whether in the body, I don't know, out of the body, I don't know, but God brought him to, to heaven and allowed him to have a glimpse of what is to come and the glories of heaven itself. Now, he didn't get a book or movie deal out of it like people in our day do, <clears throat> allegedly. They had these experiences. But Paul really did. And he saw how things turn out. He saw how things end up. He saw what you know, what is unimaginable fact, he wasn't permitted to speak about it. But then he comes back, seeing all of that after all he has suffered. And he says right here in this very chapter, for I am persuaded that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that's to be revealed to us. You have to believe this by faith because the Bible says so. But he says, I've seen it. I have seen it. I have suffered more than any of you. I've suffered far more than you can imagine. But I've seen what you have not seen. I've seen what you cannot imagine. And I'm telling you that as an eyewitness of what is to come, all the sufferings I've ever been through, oh, it's more than worth it. Because the sufferings I've been through, which is far more than you've suffered, it's not worthy to be compared to the glory that's to be revealed to us. We have no ability to conceive how glorious heaven is, how glorious God is when we look into those eyes like a flame of fire, the Bible says. 
and the glories of heaven, the transformation of the body, all of these things, we do not have the capacity to imagine it. One of my heroes, Jonathan Edwards, the most remarkable thing I've ever read in my life apart from the Bible in a sermon he wrote called Nothing Upon Earth Can Represent the Glories of Heaven. He says they're, they're the gr- most glorious, valuable thing in the world, gold, a gold that's so pure it's transparent. That's, that's garbage in heaven. That's worthless in heaven. And if the most glorious thing in the earth is va- worthless in heaven, think about what the really valuable things are, the iridescence of the city. The Glorious faces of people reflecting the very glory of God, but most of all, the face of God. To try to convey, to try to understand, help people understand how glorious heaven is, is like trying to explain algebra to an ant. No matter how clear you make it, the ant can't get it. The ant doesn't have the capacity to understand algebra. Guys, that's us regarding heaven. We can imagine, many of us have seen beautiful scenery before. We've had breathtaking views of, of things. And we just think, well, it's going to be like that only, you know, a few notches up. No, we have no capacity. We have no comparison. There's no earthly comparison to how glorious heaven is. We can't get it. And Paul says, but I have seen it. And I'm telling you, it's so glorious that it makes the first look at it makes every moment of your life worth living, no matter how much you suffered in it before then. And Paul says, you know what, if God will do that, if he will take everything I've ever suffered, if he will take everything I've ever been through and will so transform it so that the day will come that I will praise God for it, God is for me. Again, only a believer can say that because just the opposite of Romans 8, 28 is true for unbelievers. For those who do not love God, who do not call according to his purpose, all things work together for evil. The greatest blessings unbelievers ever experience in this world only, only bring curses to them forever because for all eternity they are held accountable for not thanking God for the greatest blessings they got in this world, for using them not for His glory but only for themselves. And all the blessings they received in this world, the best things that ever happened to them, they will wish they had never happened in this life because they will only increase their guilt and misery in hell forever. But our God is so great and so good. He can take the worst things that ever happened to a Christian and cause us in eternity not just to have the memory erased. Thank God I can hope for a day when the the pain won't bother me anymore. The memory will be erased. No, it's not just a neutrality on these things. We will actually praise God for the worst things that ever happened because he will bless us through them forever and ever and ever. And Paul says, what a God. If we have a God who will do that, God is for us. But that's not all. Then follows that immediately with what's sometimes called Paul's golden chain. These are among the things that Paul convinces Paul and ought to convince believers here this morning that God is for us. Verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he, Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brothers, many made like Jesus. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Like Paul, if you are in Christ, the Bible says here that he foreknew you. And the word here means more than just he knew about you in advance, new choices you would make in advance, new things about you before they happen. It's a more intimate word than that. It, It means that He knew everything about you, even the worst things about you, even the worst sins you would ever commit, and he loved you anyway. We could almost translate it as foreloved. Knowing everything about you, every sin you would ever commit, he loved you anyway. And predestined you, it says, to become conformed to the image of his Son. All those in Christ have been predestined to be like Jesus Christ. Not in his divinity. We're not going to be little gods, as the Mormons believe. 
Rather, we're going to be like Jesus in his sinless, perfect humanity, reflecting the glory of God from every cell and pore of our bodies forever and ever. Now, if this passage had said God had predestined us to be like angels, we would have rejoiced forever to be made beings that glorious. And in fact, it needs to be clarified and maintained quite often that when we get to heaven, humans don't morph into angels. That's a different classification of beings. And we don't become angels, but that's the common understanding, isn't it? I mean, if you see any kind of political cartoon that shows someone uh, entering heaven, you know, they're, they're, they're becoming an angel. They, they get their angel's wings, you know, and a halo. And uh, somehow that's the picture, that when we get to heaven, we become angels. It's about to be reinforced again. And that, you know, beloved old movie, It's a Wonderful Life, where Jimmy Stewart, you know, helps, uh, what's his name, Clarence, uh, the angel, get his, you know, uh, uh, his angel second class. He's trying to get his angel's wings. Though clearly, he used to live on earth, he used to be here, but now he went to heaven, so he's angel second class. He's trying to get his wings. Folks, we don't go to heaven to become angels. We're predestined to be made like Jesus Christ in his sinless, perfect humanity, not, not an angel. Now, when we see angels in the Bible, I mean, this, the apostle John, for example, twice in the book of Revelation, he fell on his face and worshiped the angel revealing things to him. Now, John knew better than that. I think John had a pretty good theology by this time. Don't you think? He knew intellectually, the Bible says, worship God alone, don't worship angels. He knew that. And yet, when one actually appeared to him, even just a 15-watt bulb version of his glory, he fell on his face to worship the angel. And in both times, the angel said, don't do that. Worship God. And I'm sure as the old man, you know, creakily got up, he, he said, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I know I shouldn't do that. I couldn't help myself. You're too glorious. If we knew we were going to be made creatures like that, we would have rejoiced forever to be transformed from this kind of body to that kind of body forever. But folks, it's better than that. We have been predestined to become conformed to the image of his son radiating the glory of God, reflecting his glory from every part of us forever and ever. And Paul says, you know, <laughs> if God's going to make me like that, God is for me. But that's not all. For those whom he predestined, it says these he also called. A call that was issued that, that awakens the dead. The kind of call that when Jesus went to the tomb, he said, Lazarus, come forth. And if he hadn't said Lazarus, they all would have come forth. But Lazarus, who was dead for three days, came forth. That's the kind of call that happens to those who are spiritually dead in their sins and transgressions, as Ephesians 2.1 puts it. And God sends forth through the gospel the call that awakens those who are spiritually dead, just like that night, that Thursday night when I was nine years old. I'd been taking to church Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night since nine months before I was born. I'd heard the gospel countless times, but that night I heard him calling me, calling me in a way he had not called me before, and calling me in a way he didn't call the boys on my right and the boys on my left that night. I heard him calling me through the gospel like I'd never heard him calling me before. And he had no obligation to call me. He didn't need me. I added nothing to the team. He called me through the gospel. And those whom he called, it says, these he also justified. And justified, of course, means more than just, if we may even talk like this, the mere forgiveness of every sin we've ever committed. So we could attach the word mere to that sentence. Justification is much more than that. And by the way, let's remember it's a Bible term. It's not a theologian's term. It's a Bible term, so God wants us to understand it. But to be justified means more than just having every sin you've ever committed taken away. I want you to imagine a line that extends. Well, well this, this is the center point right here, this microphone. A line that extends infinitely in this direction at minus 1, minus 2, minus 3 to infinity. And here's plus 1, plus 2, plus 3 to infinity. 
the Bible says, and one of the young ladies in her testimony today said, confessed she was utterly depraved, utterly thoroughly, every part depraved, affected by sin. No part of us that's not affected by sin. And so what that means is every word, every deed, every thought is somehow affected by sin, and that increases our guilt before God. Every moment, our sin increases. We can't go a second without sin. If you believe that, that really leads to some problems. Because if you can go one second without sin, you can go two. If you can go two, you can go ten. If you can go ten, why can't you go a minute? If you can go a minute, why can't you go ten minutes? And this leads to the the Wesleyan doctrine of sinless perfectionism, which we think is well-intended but, but not biblical. But the reality is we can't go one second without sin because every word, every deed, every thought, every motive is some degree affected by our sins. So Jonathan Edwards, to quote him again, famously said, our sins are infinite upon infinite and multiplied by infinite. How can that be? How can they be infinite? Because every word, motive, deed, and thought is affected to some degree by sin. Someone put it this way, if sin were blue, everything I ever said, every thought I ever had, every motive of my heart, every action I ever took would be some shade of blue. Some would be, a, you know, a dark shade of navy blue. Some would be a lighter shade of blue. But everything would be blue. Therefore, everything only increases my guilt before God. How does the Bible put it? In the prophets, it says, even our righteousnesses, it's a plural term, right? So you do this act of righteousness and this act of righteousness and this act of righteousness, which we ought to do. It's good. But even our righteousness, as the Bible says, are as what? Filthy rags, right? I mean, we know our sins are filthy rags before God, but the Bible says that in our righteousness, when we have those moments, we say, this is righteousness and this is unrighteousness and I choose righteousness. Good. That's what you ought to choose. In some sense, God is pleased with that. When the Bible says this is obedience and this is disobedience, you say, uh, I choose obedience. Good. That's what you ought to choose. And in some sense, God is pleased with that. But the Bible says that even when we obey, we don't obey perfectly. Even when we do righteousness, it's not perfect righteousness compared to a holy God. And therefore, our sins are infinite. And when we try to make up for them, we do so with bloody hands. Someone says even our, our repentance needs to be repented of. Even our tears need to be washed. So even when we try to make up for it, we're only increasing our guilt. But our sins are infinite upon infinite because the Bible says, Jesus said, the greatest commandment is to love God with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, all of our strength. And whenever we're sinning, and when is that? Every moment. At the same, if we're sinning, we're not keeping the greatest of all commandments, are we? Therefore, every sin is a double sin because it's a sin in and of itself, and it's breaking the greatest commandment at the same time. So our sins are infinite upon infinite and multiplied by infinite. But to have our sins forgiven means we just come back to zero, to neutral, right? You've got to have more to go to heaven than no sin. You realize if you'd never sinned in your life, you still couldn't go to heaven. It takes more to go to heaven than zero. <laughs> it takes more to go to heaven than no sin, and we have infinite sin. But if we'd never sinned, we couldn't go to heaven because to go to heaven, you must also have perfect righteousness. And we have none. But there was a man, a man who came from heaven, a man who lived 33 years of perfect righteousness. Every moment of his life, he loved God with all of his heart, all of his soul, all of his mind, all his strength, and his neighbor as himself. And Jesus lived a life that earned heaven. And that qualified him to be a substitute for those who had forfeited heaven by breaking God's law. And he willingly offered himself on the cross as a substitute for lawbreakers like us. And God accepted that substitution, we know, because God bodily raised him from the dead, ascended into heaven, from which someday he will come as judge and ruler 
over all. And our responsibility is to repent, to turn from living for ourselves and put our trust in His righteousness, what He did, His work, and not our own. So that on the cross, as the Bible puts it in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, that great exchange took place that God made Him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us that we, the infinite sinners, might become zero? Neutral? No, that we, the infinite sinners, might become the righteousness of God in Him. In Him, the righteousness of God is ours when we believe into Christ. The word believe, believe in Jesus doesn't mean we just believe He existed. We believe into Jesus. It's like using faith as a verb. We faith into Jesus. You've heard of being united with Christ by faith. When we faith into Jesus, we're united with Him. Get ready for this. We get credit for His life. God looks upon you as though you healed all those people. God looks upon you as though you spoke those words of wisdom and teaching. God looks upon you as though you had the perfectly pure heart of Jesus. God looks upon you as though you had the perfectly pure mind of Christ. And on the cross, He looks upon Jesus as though he had lived my life. And you know what the perfectly pure, that, that got for the perfectly pure Son of God when he got credit for my life? The atomic bomb of the wrath of God. That's what it means to be justified, not merely forgiven all of our sins, but to be given the righteousness of Christ. And even that's not all. For those whom he justified, it says, these he also glorified, made like Jesus Christ forever and ever. And notice it's in the past tense. These he also glorified. It's done. In the mind of God, it's done. It's finished. It's certain. So Paul backs up here. He says, what do we say to these things? <laughs> well, thanks, Paul. Well, he, he gives the Holy Spirit to me who prays for me when I can't pray. When I don't know what to pray, he prays for me and his prayers are always answered. And then because of that, he takes everything that ever happens to me, even the worst things that ever happened to me, and doesn't just give me the hope that he'll neutralize the memory someday and they won't hurt me anymore. No, he's going to make the outcome so great that I will praise God forever for everything, even the worst things that ever happened to me. And then before the foundation of the world, knowing everything about me, knowing every sin I would ever sin, he loved me anyway and predestined me to be like Jesus. And then when I was his enemy, I was dead in trespasses and sins, he called me. Called me with a call that awakens the dead. Though I didn't deserve it, I wasn't seeking it. He called me and then gave me, me, credit for having lived the whole life of Jesus and then has ensured that for all eternity, I'm going to be like Christ. What shall we say to these things? Well, I know one thing we can say, Paul says, if he will do that, God is for me. Well then, if that's true, as it is, we want to ask, then why is my life so stinking hard? Why have these things happened to me, to my church to me in the last seven years, why have these things happened to me? Why is my life so hard if God is for me like this? Oh, it sounds great. Sunday morning. I've got to go out of here and go back to the real world, and life is hard. Well, life is hard because we do have forces against us. It doesn't say here that nothing or no one is against us. I mean, the Bible tells us that indeed the whole world is against us. Jesus says, if the world hated me, it's going to hate those who follow me. And increasingly, to be a follower of Christ in this world is like swimming upstream, and the current is getting harder and harder, isn't it? The things you believe and stand for because you're a Christian, the whole world is against that. You believe that once conceived, that human life should, should not be put to death, that life should come to birth, human birth. Well, the whole world's against that. If you believe marriage is to be between one man and one woman for life, well, the world's against that. And the things we cling to that the Bible teaches us, it's a whole world is against that. 
That makes life hard. The Bible also says, though, that the flesh is against us. And the flesh is not referring to our bodies. It's referring to that part of us, even though we're justified. There's still, while we do live in these bodies, there's still a part of us that finds sin appealing and temptation attractive. That's what the flesh is. And even though the Spirit of God causes us now to have these new loves, we love holiness, we, we love the Word of God, we love the will of God, and we want that. Paul also is the one who tells us the Spirit wars against the flesh, the flesh against the Spirit. There's a war going on so that we don't always do what we want. We want to never sin again. We want to please God in every moment. But we don't always do what we want. Sometimes we sin, and when we sin, quite often we know we're sinning. We choose to sin in the moment. We want sin in that moment more than righteousness. And that makes life hard. Because of the flesh, we make foolish and sinful decisions that put scars on our bodies sometimes, scars on our relationships. Wars within us. We hate ourselves for some of the very things we choose to do. And because of fleshly decisions, we often make decisions that have hard consequences, long-term consequences, and it makes life hard. The world, the flesh, the Bible says the devil is against us. He made life a lot harder for Job. He can make life a lot harder for us if God permits. But what Paul is saying here, according to the late pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philly, Jim Boyce. The picture is you've got these, the Apostle Paul has this old-fashioned set of scales here. And on one side, he's putting the things that are against us, like peanuts. Who is against us? Who is against us? Well, Paul, the whole world is against us. All right, put that peanut over there. Blink. Anything else? Well, yeah, there's a sin factory that beats in my chest all the time, and that works against me. Okay, put that there. Plunk. Anything else? Well, the devil's sure against me, Paul. Okay, put that there. Plunk. Anything else? Well, I think my boss is against me. I think my teachers are against me. Okay, put that there. Plunk. And then it's so Paul throws the anvil of God on the other side. Boom. If God is for us, who is against us? The world, the flesh, the devil? Who are they if God is for us. So what he's pulling together here ultimately is if God is for you, nothing or no one can thwart his eternal plan for you. Nothing or no one can thwart his eternal plan for you. Your place in heaven is secure. If you could lose your salvation, you would. You already would have lost it if you could lose it. But God's plan is to glorify all those he knew in eternity past, he foreloved in eternity past, and he will fulfill his plan. Nothing and no one can thwart his plan. So, if you're truly in Christ, you've fallen perhaps under false teaching in the past, these false teachers wanted to say that you have lost your salvation. Those false teachers can't cause you to lose your salvation because God has secured it. If you've left some religious community that now condemns you, there is no religious official, no religious organization that can decree that you lose your salvation. And neither can unbelieving parents, nor an unbelieving spouse, nor an unbelieving boss, nor any other unbeliever so tempt you or confine you or restrict you from following Christ as you want that would ever cause him to reject you. And when it says, if God is for us, who can be against us? My brother, sister in Christ, the who includes you. The who includes you. You could not put yourself in to your salvation. You cannot put yourself out. You did not earn it. You cannot forfeit it. Now, I want that to sink in, but let me hurry to say this. Anyone who hears that and thinks that means 
that once you make a profession of faith, once you are baptized, you can live any way that you want, still go to heaven, is probably a stranger to grace in the first place. But I'm not speaking to that person who wants to, to misuse or try to misuse the grace of God. Rather, I'm hoping to speak pastorally to a person of tender conscience who has been struggling under the inability to break a sinful habit or dealing with a memory of some particularly heinous sin in the past and believes that because of their inability to break that habit that they wish God would take away, they can't get past the memory of some particularly heinous sin in the past that ultimately the patience of God will be exhausted by you and at the end of it all, he will slam the door of heaven in your face. My brother, sister, you did not open the door of heaven yourself. He opened that door and welcomed you in and he does not put his children out. Once you are born into his family, you do not you never die again. I'm talking to people who, who want Christ and his salvation more than anything. The people who want heaven more than anything. Though they sin when they choose, they sin, they choose to sin, yet they hate themselves for that. And you would literally pray, Lord, I am willing right now for you to take that desire out of my life. In fact, take every sin out of my life forever. I would, Lord, I'm ready right now. Make me, change me so that I never sin again. Only a Christian thinks like that. If that's your heart's prayer, God is for you. So if God is for us, who is against us? The who includes you. Because remember, it says he foreloved you, right? He foreknew you, knew everything about you, knew every sin you would ever commit and foreloved you. But you know what else he knew? Not only every sin we would ever commit, but every sin you would have committed if you'd had the chance. I realize sometimes, mo most of the time, like Edwards, I feel like my sins are infinite upon infinite, multiplied by infinite. But every once in a while, I will look at someone who's committed some particularly egregious sin or someone who has been just a high-handed sinner all their life, shaking their fist in the face of God, and I'm tempted to think, well, at least I'm not that bad. But you know what God knows? God knows not only every sin I have ever committed, even sins I'm not aware of. He not only knows every sin I've ever committed and ever will commit, He knows every sin I would have committed if I'd been given the chance. If I'd had someone else's pressures, someone else's temptations, someone else's limitations, someone else's background, God knows I would have been a bigger sinner than I have been. And He loved me anyway. When God is for you, who is against you. So let me begin to wrap this up now. First, as a reminder, we, we need to often need to reaffirm the truth. To reaffirm the truth. And the truth is God is for us. Because while we can affirm that on a Sunday morning, it's very easy for us to quickly think, I feel this, yes, but what is the truth? I think this, but what is the truth? The circumstances tell me this, but what is the truth? The lie against the truth often comes forth from our own thoughts, our own flesh, from the world, from our circumstances, always telling us God doesn't love you. God can't love you. How could you do what you did and be a Christian? How could you think that and be a Christian? How could God let this happen to you if you were really a Christian, if he loved you? That's what we feel, we think, the world tells us, circumstances tell us. We need to constantly be saying, what is the truth? What is the truth? And the truth is, if God is for us, who can be against us? And he's demonstrated how he is for us. Second, when God is for you, he's for you forever. He is for you forever. A few years ago, I was reading a book by the greatest of the Puritan theologians, John Owen. And <clears throat> I, great book on, called Communion with God. 
I was about 13 pages in. Good. Edifying. But then I read one sentence, and like a light switch, the tears began to flow. I don't know if I've ever had it happen that quickly before. Here was the sentence. He said, the greatest sorrow and burden you can lay upon the Father, the greatest unkindness you can do to him is not to believe that he loves you. The most hurtful thing you can ever do to God, the greatest offense, is not believe that he loves you. He gives you his Holy Spirit who prays for you when you can't pray. You don't know what to pray, and he prays for you by his Holy Spirit, and that prayer is always answered, and he takes everything that ever happens, everything, even the worst things, and doesn't just neutralize them in eternity somewhere. He turns them into gold in such a way that we praise God forever for everything that happens, even the worst things. And then knowing everything about you, every sin you would ever commit, he loved you anyway and predestined you to be like Jesus and called you when he didn't have to call you, when you were his enemy, and then gave you credit for having lived the whole life of Jesus and has guaranteed, ensured that you are going to be like Christ forever and ever, and you wonder if he loves you? <laughs> what greater evidence could he give you? Would winning the publisher's clearinghouse sweepstakes convince you better than those things? When God is for you, he is for you forever. So, my brother or sister, the great question here is, is God for you? Is God for you? He is for all who are in Christ. And so, if you have come to Christ and you humbly and trembly say, I, I believe he is for me. Then, my brother or sister, draw all the spiritual pleasure you can out of that. Rejoice that God is for me. God is for me. God is for me. God is for me. If you never come to Christ, if you've tried to make a beautiful life on your own without Him, if you found His crucifixion and resurrection unnecessary in your case, and realize someday, regardless of how well your life seems to be going now, you may look around and say, hey, I wouldn't trade lives with anyone here. My business is going better. My life is going better than just about anyone else in this room. Realize that you have made him your enemy by refusing his son. And one day, to your horror, you will stand before him and realize the terrifying truth of what it means to be an enemy of God. But if you will come to Christ, though this morning you may have come fearing that this building might fall in over you if a person such as you came into this room, this is who he died for. He came for sinners. He'll receive you. In the name of Jesus, I say, come and welcome to Jesus Christ. Or you may have been in church every Sunday of your life, but if your life were exposed, it would be the biggest scandal in Milford. He says even the self-righteous, he'll receive you too. He came for sinners, the righteous sinners and the unrighteous ones. But if you will come to him, no matter who you are or what you've done or how many times you've done it, if you will come to him, regardless of whether you ever get the house you want or the spouse you want or the children you want or the income you want or the education you want or anything else you want, come to Christ and you get God. And if God is for us, who is against us? Let's pray. Oh, God. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
Thank you for the Bible in which we read the gospel and learn about Jesus. Thank you for the church where the gospel is preached. Thank you, Lord, for gifts you give to the church, as Ephesians says, pastors and teachers. Thank you, Lord. All good and perfect gifts are from you. And I pray if there's anyone here today who's never come to you, I pray that you would exalt Jesus in their eyes. And as was said in one of the baptism testimonies today, that after years in the church, last Sunday, the word is preached, and that changes everything. May that moment come for some here today. This be the moment when they suddenly realize not only who Jesus is, but that they need Jesus. And not only do they need him, they want Jesus more than anything. And they're willing to give themselves their future, their everything, to have Jesus. I ask all this in his name and for your glory. Amen.